Holy Spirit, make your word come alive to us this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are the source of revelation in the scriptures, and you are the source of application in our lives today, Holy Spirit. So, Lord, would you please come now and grant me your anointing so that the words I speak would be your present word in this moment for these people, for your glory and their edification. And would you please, Lord God, grant us open ears and receptive hearts so that we might take the word of God implanted in us and bear great fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is liturgically and canonically my last Sunday in the pulpit as your rector, your senior pastor here at Christ Church. Next Sunday, uh, Bishop Alan Hawkins will officially institute, that's right, we institutionalize pastors. We don't install them, they're institutionalized. That's right, we're going to institute Father Benji as our new rector, and at that point, he will be the priest in charge at Christ Church. And as such, it is providential, it's God's providence that we come to this passage from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians as a part of the assigned lectionary readings for this Sunday. Now, in Christ Church's moment of transition, this is a great passage for us to read because it reminds us of what is central, what's essential to being a follower of Jesus, and what is central, what is essential to our life together as a local congregation. Now, to begin with, there are two different views in this passage about what occasions Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. What is the occasion for Paul to write to the church in Corinth? First of all, there's the Corinthian view of why he is writing them. You see, the Corinthian church had written to Paul, written him a letter, asking him to clarify some questions they had about discipleship and about ordering the life of the local congregation. That's what the Corinthians were expecting in this letter. But then there's Paul's reason, there's Paul's view for his writing, and that reason is that he has gotten word from those tattletales in Chloe's household that there are factions and quarrels erupting in the church in Corinth. And as a result, Paul begins this part of his letter with this appeal. Listen to it. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So that passage right there actually provides us a wonderful little outline for where we're going to go this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the call to Christian unity within the church. We're going to look at Paul's call for Christian unity within the church. We're going to listen to what Paul has to say about the sources of disunity, what causes disunity, and then we're going to hear what the apostle has to say to us this morning about what is the ultimate source, what's the ground of our unity. And the first thing that we hear in this passage is that, listen, this is important, Christian unity is not adiaphora, it is not a debatable thing, it's not a questionable thing. No, it is not optional at all. It is essential. It is central to Christian discipleship. Listen again, please, to the intensity of Paul's appeal in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. 
Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So when Paul says this, when he says, I appeal to you, the strength of the verb is this. I plead with you. I plead with you. And then he follows that up with, by a, invoking the very authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that tell us? It shows us that what follows is of the utmost importance. This is serious, that there be no divisions, and the word there literally is no schisms, no schisms among you. Rather, that they would be united. Uh, it's actually, it's, a, it's kind of odd that that word united occurs twice in the Bible readings we had this morning. The first time it appears, or the, the, actually the, the, in the last reading in the gospel reading, is when it says that James and John were with their father Zebedee, and what were they doing? They were mending, mending their nets. That same word for mend, that to join together solidly, to knit together, is the same word Paul uses here for the, that you be united. It's the idea of something being joined back together that has been torn. Be reunited, be joined together firmly in Christ, knitted back together and of the same mind and judgment. And then Paul can make that appeal, that appeal with the, the kind of force that he puts behind it because this is God's will through Jesus Christ himself. Jesus himself prays for unity in his great high priestly prayer. You remember this in John chapter 17. Remember this passage, John 17, 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only Jesus prays to the Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, all of us that they may be one. To what level should we be one? He says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, brothers and sisters, listen, it goes without saying that we live in a very divided moment in history in our country and th probably throughout the Western world. And that level of division can distract us from what Paul is saying in this passage because it's important and sad that those divisions exist, but what, we're typically, what we typically do is we're so distracted by all the macro division that we forget about the unity in the micro level, in the local church. And Paul is writing to a local church. He's saying, you people in Corinth be united. And, you know, we commit to that kind of unity in our membership covenant here at Christ Church, we talk about being united like that, united in Christ. Now, here is the source. Where is this disunity coming from in this Corinthian church? And Paul, to Paul, this source, the particular source of disunity he is speaking to is so unimaginably trivial. The source for their disunity is so unimaginably trivial and off-base that he has to basically show them how ridiculous it is. And he asks them some questions that you're, when you hear the questions as a Corinthian, you're supposed to say, oh my goodness, this is pretty ridiculous, isn't it? So Paul says this, verse 12, what I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. 
Or for the very punctilious ones, they would say, well, you know, in Aramaic, it's actually pronounced Kephas. So I just follow Kephas, and you can follow Cephas if you want to. We'll be divided about that. Or I follow Christ. And then Paul says this. This is, he says, look at what, what ridiculousness this is. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the Corinthians were dividing up into factions, into parties, willing to be at odds with one another, willing to risk breaking fellowship with one another over which preacher they identified with. And if we were to read further, we would see that there were other variables at play, socioeconomic variables, class variables, other variables at play in creating divisions among the Corinthians. But, but here at the beginning, Paul indicates that the local church was dividing up into fan clubs based on allegiances to certain preachers. Now, this is not really unusual because in Hellenistic society, the Greco-Roman society of the age that Paul is writing in, it was common practice for people to align themselves with eloquent speakers who would promote certain schools of philosophy. These speakers were called rhetors. That's where we get the word, you know, rhetoric, rhetors. And they were the rock stars. They were the rock stars of their day. And devotion to your particular rhetor would be like devotion to your particular sports ball team, except that it was taken even more seriously and intensely. That's right, more serious than Duke and Carolina. More serious than that. I mean, you know, families were broken over this. Okay, well, that can happen there too. But uh, So the Corinthian church was taking that, listen, they were taking that worldly party spirit and applying it to their life in the local church. Paul was, some would say, well, you know, Paul was the planter. He planted that church. And so I'm, I'm following Paul. He was the guy that planted this church. And then other people said, well, you know, Apollos, he studied in Alexandria. He is a much more educated, finer preacher and teacher than Paul. And, of course, Peter was recognized as the leader of the apostles. Everybody knew that. But then, then, there were the super spiritual people in the church who, who were, were above the fray. They were the true spiritual ones, and they said, well, you know, we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. And so we're better than you. You know, an equivalent to this would be, you know, only to go to church or not to go to church if you knew that Father Ben or Father Benji or Father Shane or Father Kelly, or Father George, there's a lot of fathers in this church, <laughs> were preaching, or leaving because our pastor left, or, or even, if the, you know, even if the new pastor, I know he's not as good looking, <laughs> but he's young and smart and orthodox. He's got a beautiful wife. The other pastor had a beautiful wife too. He's got little bitty baby children that we care about. Dividing up along those lines. You know, this kind of thinking, this kind of disunity is inconceivable for Paul because he cannot, listen, he cannot imagine Jesus Christ being chopped up and parceled out. That's the connotation. Is Christ divided? Was Christ divided? 
In fact, in verse 13, he rhetorically asks, as Christ divided, the Greek uh, assumes a negative response. Jesus hasn't been chopped up and divided for you, has he? Apparently, they were even saying that one teacher's baptism was superior to another. I like the way that Father Benji does it. <laughs> I like the way Father Ben does it. It's like Shamu <laughs> at SeaWorld. There's a splash zone. You know, we know that from his other letters that Paul takes the sacrament of holy baptism very seriously. We hear it in Romans. We certainly hear it in Colossians and in others of his letters. And as the catechism says, Paul would agree that the sacraments are generally necessary for salvation. And especially baptism in that it signifies and effects our incorporation into Christ's finished work. But they were taking baptism. This is the crazy thing. This is what's, I think, driving Paul crazy about this. They were taking baptism, which is literally God's act of uniting us with the one body of Christ. That, so it's the very source of our unity. And then they were making it at a point of division. That takes talent. That takes real skill. And so Paul tries to reprioritize their thinking. He says, and this is where this passage comes in where he, he kind of, uh, this is actually, you know, Paul's talking about, uh, you know, I didn't come to you with a lot of rhetorical flourishes, but here's a good rhetorical flourish from Paul. So I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. I know how you feel, Paul. <laughs> For Christ did not send me to baptize, to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And we hear that, and some say, well, he's minimizing baptism. Oh, no, he's not. No, he's not. He's just saying that there's something that necessarily precedes baptism. The gospel precedes baptism. The gospel precedes baptism. There's no gospel, there's no cross. If there's no cross, there's no baptism. Now, I have to say that Christ Church, since its founding, has been a remarkably unified and healthy congregation. Christ Church has been remarkable in its mutual love among the body of Christ here, genuinely. I have just a, a point of you know, personal privilege here. I, I, when I, I came to Christ Church, I, you know, uh, I'd been a pastor for a long, a, a long time, since the Pleistocene, and, uh, uh, and, and so when I came here, you know, uh, it was so healthy. The people were so healthy and generous and loving. And I, I was just, I had in my mind, this can't, it can't be this good. Y'all can't be this good. You know, the other shoe is going to drop. The other shoe is going to drop. Well, I want you to know I'm getting out of here without the other shoe dropping. <laughs> so, well done. No, remarkably healthy. Remarkably healthy and loving towards one another. But you know, brothers and sisters, Transitions are vulnerable times. So we need to stay vigilant because our enemy, the devil, uses dissension and division and disunity as perhaps his chief means of undermining the life and ministry of the local church. And we hear, hear that in one sense, the reason for that in the great high priestly prayer when Jesus said that they may be, Father, they may all be one, in one as I am in you and you are in me so that the world may believe so the world may believe. 
And that's why unity is attacked by the enemy. Now, here's where Paul redirects them as he seeks to renew their minds. He says, here is the ultimate source of our unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes this. Again, not, he's not diminishing baptism. He's saying, look, I was an, I'm sent on it as an apostolic herald of the gospel. Your pastors, your local leadership, let them baptize you. I'm sent to preach the gospel. He says, I thank God. Well, he, says, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christ Church, here is the source of our unity that will carry us into the future in this moment of transition. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. It is the good news of God's mighty work through Jesus Christ upon the cross. And if we ever deviate from that, if something else begins to be more important than that, we are on the road to destruction. You know, if we were to read on into chapter 2, we'd hear Paul say this. This typified his ministry in Corinth, and, and I pray, God, that it typified my ministry among you in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Evidently thinking of this passage, the great Anglican missiologist Roland Allen remarked, the church of those ages was afraid of the human speculation of learned men. We're afraid of the ignorance of illiterate men. Paul says that the word of the cross is foolishness, literally moronic. The Greek word is, is where we get the word moronic from, moron from. To those who are perishing. Perishing means heading to utter destruction. Now, why is the cross, why the cross? I mean, it's beautiful. It's got a be big, beautiful cross right there. It's ornamental. How could it possibly be folly? Well, first of all, the cross is a symbol and demonstration of weakness, of shame, and of contempt. It was a means of crushing people, of humiliating them, of killing them in the most painful and degrading means possible. It was unthinkable to any learned Gentile that God would become flesh in the first place, and if he did, that he would allow himself to be crucified. In their minds, the message of the cross was contemptible. And it disqualified you from being heard. You know, that actually, that same thinking exists still in Islam today. Islam teaches that Jesus didn't die on the cross because it's unthinkable that God would permit a righteous prophet to be killed like that. 
It's folly still for that reason. And yet this is exactly, the cross is exactly how God shows His greatness and glory. Our God doesn't need a head start. He can let everybody line up on the start. All the other gods can just line right up. All y'all false gods line up there. I'm going to go back a couple of kilometers back here. That's for you international people. A couple of miles back this way. And y'all start first. I'm going to start in the weakest possible position. Because I'm that much better, God says. It is through the cross, on the cross, that God embraces our weakness and our shame and our suffering and our death And then by taking the full weight of weakness and shame and suffering and death, he defeats them through the glory of the resurrection. He he just embraces all of it, soaks it all in. And then in the resurrection, he explodes the powers. Jesus Christ on the cross tramples down death by death. He tramples down death by death. Now, the second thing that makes the cross foolishness, and this is pertinent to us today, to those who are perishing, is that it says, this is because, it, listen, it, it holds a mirror up to me, and it holds a mirror up to you. The cross is God's mirror as to the real state of humanity. The cross says that you and I are rebels and sinners, and that our rebellion against God deserves that kind of punishment to be nailed on a stick, exposed, to die in suffering and humiliation. That's what we deserve. It says that you and I are utterly powerless to save ourselves from the punishment we deserve. The cross is foolishness, listen, because we deeply want to be affirmed and accepted in our rebellion and sin. I want to be affirmed and accepted in my rebellion and sin. I want to be told that I'm not that bad. And you know, that's why many people who are apostatizing, that's what they say as they're leaving the Christian faith. I felt condemned. I wasn't affirmed for who I was. The church made me feel bad about myself. Well, your worst fears are true. That's right. The first part of the good news is the bad news. And the bad news is that I am condemned. The cross tells us that we are not okay and that our guilt and shame are worse, our situation is worse than we could possibly imagine. As the prayer of confession in the historic prayer book says, and I'm paraphrasing a little here, we are guilty of manifold sins and wickedness which we most grievously have committed against God's divine majesty, provoking most justly his wrath and indignation against us. The cross is God's exclamation point to the gravity of our sin and our condemnation before him. Through the cross, God says to us, do you see what you have done? Do you see what you've done here? This is your fault. The truth is that you deserve this. This is what you are. You are a treasonous rebel. You are broken and utterly helpless. You are doomed and damned, and I have had to go this far to save you. 
I think they're right this minute. I think one of the problems that in the kind of floating around in the church, I heard it coming out of the Church of England just this past week, is that um, there is this there's there's this Pelagianism. What's that mean? Well, I won't get into the whole story of Pelagius. He's evidently a delightful human being. Everybody loved him to death. He was a horrible heretic from England, so from Britain at that time. And so anyway, basically it says, you know, you're not really that, I mean, really that bad. Deep inside of you, listen, folks, because this is what most people believe, and this is where we get sideways. If you just look deep inside, you're really deep down, you're a good person. And you just need to find that inner goodness and try really hard and grab a hold of that inner goodness and work, work, work and make that inner goodness come out. And if you really struggle, you know, you, you, you can be affirmed for who you are. Look how good you can be if you just really tried really hard. But the cross says, no, you can't. If you could save yourself by trying really hard to be good, Jesus was an idiot to be crucified. but it leads to such good news. The cross you and I deserve is not occupied by you. It's not occupied by me. It is occupied by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved you and gave himself for you. Our brokenness, fallenness, sin, and treason is not the final word in this story. The cross is God's exclamation point, not just to our broken, fallen estate, but it is the exclamation point to when God says, I love you, exclamation point, look at the cross. The cross is God the Son with his arms spread wide, exclaiming to a heedless world, I love you this much. This much. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were treasonous rebels, without God in the world, Christ died for us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There is no power on earth more attractive, more effective than self-sacrificing love. There is no power on earth greater than a love that will embrace another's suffering, even to the point of laying down one's own life, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. There's no power greater than the power of self-sacrificing love. Very early on, and it's fitting that I close with this illustration, this story, because it's one of the first stories I ever told at Christ Church. But on August 16th, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport. It remains to this day one of the worst uh, airline disasters we've ever had in this country. 155 people. 155 people were killed in that crash, but one person survived. A four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona named Cecilia. News accounts say that when res rescuers found Cecilia, they did not believe that she'd been on the plane. 
Investigators first assumed Cecilia had been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway onto which the airliner crashed. But when the passenger manifest for the flight was checked, there was Cecilia's name. Cecilia survived, and there was less than a minute between takeoff and the crash. So Cecilia survived because as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula Sheehan, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and her body around her baby girl, Cecilia, and would not let go. Nothing could separate that child from her mama's love, not tragedy or disaster, nor the fall or the flames that followed, nor height, nor depth, nor life, nor death. I read, uh, I went back and read another news report actually just yesterday. So they pulled, one of the, the report I read said they pulled her from a, a woman's arms. They heard something that sounded like a baby doll in the wreckage. And they pulled her from the arms of a dead woman. In Jesus Christ, God wrapped his arms of love around us. Covered our sin in his own body. And would not let go, even at the cost of his life. When we finally look at the cross and realize God shouts, I love you from that tree. And that when he does, he means me. And he means you. The cross goes from foolishness to power. And it finally breaks our cold, hard hearts. It is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Dorothy L. Sayers said, none of us feels the true love of God till we realize how wicked we are. But you can't teach people that. They have to learn by experience. On the cross, God says, I know exactly, Ben Sharp, I know exactly who you are. God knows exactly who you are. I know exactly what you have done. And I still love you this much. I still love you this much. This much. The sacrifice that is represented that we participate in once again, the one perfect final oblation of Christ upon the cross that we enter into right here says, I love you this much. This is my body wrapped around you in love to save you from death. This is my blood shed for you to quench the flames of God's judgment. So, Christian or non-Christian, are you far away from God today? Jesus says, I love you this much. His arms remain open. Won't you turn away from your self-centered sin 
and receive him. Don't you run to the Father. My last word to you as a pastor, I'll be here, I'll be around, I'll be your rector emeritus, I'll be the, the old worn out tire and the tire well that you go to when you get a flat. <laughs> My last word to you is the cross, the cross of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your cross, because we see your love for us there. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.